You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We have the honor and privilege of hosting BMO Financial Group's official COVID-19 weekly call with Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, along with three other subject matter experts at BMO Financial Group, Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist at BMO Financial Group, Janelle Woodward, Head of Fixed Income for Global Asset Management, and myself, Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Before we introduce Dr. John White's comment, just as a reminder, if you need medical advice, please seek a medical professional, whether or not it's a nurse or a doctor. And as we lead into Dr. John White's comments, he is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is the chief medical officer at WebMD. In this role, he leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the USFDA. Also, please keep in mind that Dr. White is a frontline soldier with respect to COVID-19 coronavirus as he currently sees clients in the Maryland and Washington, D.C. area. And with that, we're going to hand the ball off to Dr. John White with his comments for this week, May 11th. So worldwide, there's over 4 million cases, as many of you know, with 282,000 deaths. In Canada, it's 68,800 cases with nearly 5,000 deaths. In the United States, it's 1. nearly 4 million cases and over 80,000 deaths. But something to keep in mind in terms of the number of cases, there's five states that account for over 60% of all cases and deaths, and those are New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, and California. And that's important to keep in mind as we talk about reopening. There are new projections um, that there may be more than 130,000 total COVID deaths in the United States by early August. And I, I want to point out that that number has nearly doubled in less than a week. So if you asked me a week ago, I would have told you it was 60,000, 65,000. But uh, IHME, which does a lot of the modeling, has changed their numbers based on the fact that states in the United States are relaxing the restrictions. But I also want to point out to you, and you can look at the data yourself at healthdata.org, that this really is a moving target that the numbers are being changed, if not on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis. And that is causing some concerns for transparency because there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty in this modeling. And when the news media reports it, it's often reported as, you know, this is the actual number and what it's going to be. So it's important to keep that in mind. In terms of the latest news, you might have seen that FDA authorized a saliva test from Rutgers University Labs 
they actually received an amended emergency use authorization on Thursday. They had received one for the saliva test, but you would still have to go to a medical professional to collect it. Now you can collect your own saliva at home and send it to the lab for results. And it has roughly the same accuracy as a nasal swab. And, and that's important to keep in mind because that might be simpler to do. And it's also a trend. I want to talk about trends today that I think we're going to start to see in terms of DIY, almost do-it-yourself, home testing um, for COVID. And the FDA also granted the first emergency use authorization to a diagnostic company called Quidel for the first COVID-19 antigen test. Uh, not antibody test, but an antigen test, which can quickly detect coronavirus through a different strategy. The challenge is it's less accurate than some other types of tests. But the antigen test really is similar to a rapid flu or strep test. It's run in a lab or a doctor's office, and it takes about 15 minutes. So that's going to be important as we think about how do we ramp up testing. Because the other testing, as you may know, really was done through what's called PCR, which looks for genetic sequence. And, and the antigen test, without giving an immunology lesson, is looking for molecules on the surface of the virus. So they return the results much more quickly, but they're less accurate. So if the test says a patient sample is positive, it's actually likely to be correct. So a positive test is likely to be correct, but the challenge is it has a high rate of false negatives, and, and that's the concern. But we also have to recognize that, that this is innovation. This is iteration. We had none of these tests in January, and here we are in May with numerous tests out on the market. And testing really is going to continue to be critically important in containment and mitigation strategies. And it plays a key role in states reopening and staying open. We do know that states aren't testing enough of the population. We see that actually around the world. Because if you have a high positivity rate, meaning the number of people that you're testing, a high percentage, more than 10%, you're really just treating those patients that are severely symptomatic. We need to test a broader patient population to gain insights about the spread. And then real quickly on antibody testing, I get asked about that all the time, Roche did announce a test that's 100% sensitive and over 99% specific. And these are high numbers, and these are the numbers that we want to see when you're looking at a test because you want to avoid false positives as well as false negatives. The point of care tests, which are those pinprick tests, are much lower. So I do want to point out, if you keep this in mind, when people hear 95% sounds high or 90% sounds high, it's not high when you're going to be testing millions of people because you're going to get tens of thousands of false results. So we really need to look at tests that are over 99% sensitivity and specificity. And the FDA did announce a week and a half ago that they're going to crack down on some of these point-of-care testing that came to market under an emergency use authorization. And what the FDA had allowed was you could actually come to market without actually even providing data on your accuracy. Now you need to go back to the process where you submit your data and then you can go to market. But we're going to see much more innovation on testing. And we also have to acknowledge that the pandemic is going to have a lasting impact on the healthcare system in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, really around the world. 
And I wanted to just talk a few minutes about how that likely is going to persist beyond COVID-19. So as Brian mentioned, I, I still see patients. I'm doing much of it through telemedicine, through Kaiser Permanente. And there really has been this huge uptake in terms of telemedicine. But there actually overall has still been a 75% reduction in the number of patient physical visits. In the United States, there's over 100 million visits to a physician per month. And we do know that telemedicine has skyrocketed. But remember, it's very small, single digits uh, for most places to begin with. And the total number of visits has only been partially offset by telemedicine visits. It, it probably is only returning about 20%, about 100 million of monthly patient consultation. And in telemedicine, we're really seeing uptake in psychiatry, in allergy, in immunology, in internal medicine. Again, it's only making up a fraction of the average monthly visits seen prior to COVID-19. So how are we going to adjust for that when people are going to start returning to, to see their doctor returning to the hospital? Lab tests have decreased by 90%. I bet no one on the phone has had any non-COVID lab draw recently. And that impacts patient management. It, it may not seem on the surface is that that important, but it sure is in terms of managing diabetes, high cholesterol, our renal, kidney function. We're going to see the effects of this lack of testing and this lack of monitoring months from now. Prescription drug utilization. What's interesting, if you asked me in March, I would have told you that there were nearly 50 million more prescriptions for chronic conditions. What we saw that patients were stockpiling up, which made sense. You're not going to be able to go out. What if there's decrease in manufacturing? We really started to get those 90-day refills instead of those 30-day refills that often happens in the United States if, if you go to a pharmacy um, that your insurer doesn't want you to go to. But to look at it more closely, new prescriptions, those branded prescriptions or even just, you know, a, a new medication to manage, say, high blood pressure is down nearly 10 million. So what conditions aren't being diagnosed or what poorly treated conditions aren't being modified? We're going to see those results soon. The other big issue that I've talked before is about cancer screening. Mammography, pap smears are down 80%. Colonoscopies are down 90%. PSA screening is down 60%. There's estimates by the American Cancer Society that this is going to translate into 80,000 fewer cancer diagnoses for patients. So as we start to reopen, particularly the healthcare system, will we have the capacity to catch up on this test? delayed elective surgery, you know, ramping up uh, cancer treatments. Are we going to work on Saturdays? Are we going to work on Sundays? Get those nurses and other health professionals who've been furloughed in some health systems, will they come back? And then in, in treatments, real, you know, quickly, because I, I talk about that a lot, there really is this surge of activity underway. And that's great. There's over 180 drugs in trials. There's another 90 uh, drugs that aren't in trials but are in preclinical testing. But we're starting to see, you may have seen this weekend, COVID-19 might be treated more like HIV, where it's triple therapy, quadruple therapy, and not just one drug as we typically would treat a virus or an infection. That's where we're starting to see some movement, combined therapy. And as you know, at least 50 vaccines are in discovery or, or preclinical stages, and the FDA recently announced that a, a vaccine is going to phase 
2 testing, uh, a company named Moderna, Moderna uh, and, and they started in March. So this is rapid progress. WHO has also announced eight potential vaccines for COVID. I've been a big proponent, as many of you know, saying I think we need to take a realistic approach to the development of vaccines. And Johnson & Johnson announced this weekend that they're going to have the capacity to make millions of vaccines if we need it. But here's the issue that we need to think about. We're talking about a hypothetical vaccine. We don't actually have a vaccine right now. And ultimately, we do need to produce millions, billions perhaps of doses. And companies usually build new facilities tailored for any given vaccine because they have different requirements. So, yes, we are making tremendous progress and moving at a fast speed. But let's use history as our guide in terms of where we have had progress before. In terms of reopening, um, the Prime Minister in Canada has announced, even as of Saturday, that if provinces move too quickly to reopen their economies, the second wave of the coronavirus pandemic could send Canada back into confinement this summer. And, and that's a big concern. In the United States, despite recommendations of two weeks of continuous decline for various matrices, states are starting to relax their stay-at-home orders. Um, and we are likely to see more cases. That's partly because there's more testing. But we really want to examine the severity of those cases. How many people are going to hospital? How many deaths are there? So we need to look at that closely because I also think there is a fatigue growing uh, with these stay-at-home orders, the concern about their economic uh, viability and able to be providing for their family. And this is what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. What are the guidelines in terms of returning to work? And all too often, we don't have good direction in terms of what needs to be done in the workplace to keep people safe. I do have a lot of optimism in terms of where we are today versus where we are on, where we were on March 9th. We're seeing a decrease in rate of hospitalizations, a decrease in the rate of deaths. We're better prepared in terms of surge capacity, in terms of protective equipment. We're much further along on where we are in um, treatment, therapeutic options in terms of trials. And we're going to have iterative process in, in terms of testing as well as an iterative process in terms of the opening. We're going to see more of a surgical approach, I said that before, than a scalpel approach. Instead of shutting down a whole state, I think we'll see things shut down in regions um, to contain a virus and to keep those that are most at risk protected, while at the same time figuring out a process of how do we live with the virus. Here are the four main points of Dr. White's comments this week. Number one, globally, there are over 4 million cases with 282,000 deaths. In Canada, there are 68,000 cases with nearly 5,000 deaths. In the United States, there are 1.4 million cases with over 80,000 deaths. Five states account for over 60% of all U.S. cases, though, in deaths, and new projections indicate there could be over 130,000 deaths by early August. Note, this is a figure that it's a moving target, doubling just in the last week or so, mainly reflecting states that are relaxing restrictions. Point number two, in terms of testing, there has been ongoing progress, and we continue to see more DIY home testing. 
The FDA authorized a saliva test from Rutgers University, which has roughly the same accuracy as a nasal swab, and the first antigen test was also authorized. This test is similar to a rapid flu or strep test in that it reaps results within 15 minutes. Results are likely to be correct, but there's a high rate of false negatives. Point number three, looking ahead, we expect the pandemic will have a lasting impact on the U.S. and Canadian healthcare system. One, telemedicine use has skyrocketed, but it's still a fraction of the average monthly visits, which have declined by over 75% from the typical 100 million per month. There will be fewer doctor visits and telemedicine use will continue to rise in Dr. White's view. Two, cancer screening tests, such as mammograms, pap smears, and colonoscopies have dropped by 80 to 90%, which is expected to translate into 80,000 fewer cancer patients being diagnosed. Doctors and hospitals will need to figure out how to catch up on the diagnosis situation and issue, and treatment for that matter for these patients. Three, the long-term treatment of COVID could potentially be similar to that of HIV, where you apply triple drugs, combined therapies to treat the virus. And last and final point, number four, Dr. White always likes to end on a positive note. He remains optimistic based on the decrease in rate of hospitalizations and deaths, hospital surge capacity, and ongoing discussions for strategic reopening. As mentioned previously, figuring out a process in terms of reopening and getting back to normal will be the main focus. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.